Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. And yes, it is TIFF right now, but you deserve something nice, so my guest for this Bonus Friday episode is Sophie Jarvis, whose first feature, Until Branches Bend, makes its world premiere this Saturday, September 10th, at 8pm at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 2, repeating Monday, September 12th at 8.30pm at the Scotiabank 10. Grace Glowicki, friend of the show, stars as a safety inspector at a British Columbia peach cannery who becomes convinced she's found evidence of an invasive species that could threaten the entire business, only to find that no one wants to hear about it. It's a character study that plays like a thriller, and you're going to want to see it. Sophie picked Another Year, Mike Lee's 2010 ensemble drama about four seasons in the lives of an unassuming English couple, Tom and Jerry Heppel, played by Jim Broadbent and Ruth Sheen. Tom and Jerry live in a little house with a nice garden, and they're always inviting friends and family to come out for a meal or a chat to escape their miserable lives for a little bit. And their friends' lives really do seem miserable. Tom and Jerry's don't, though, and they've made it their mission to brighten the lives of others with good cheer. Well, that's one reading of it. I'll explain. This is someone else's movie. I really love Mike Lee's work, and I think that Another Year might be my favorite one of his films. I think that... um, it's one of the quietest films he's made, which is a hard one. And it, and it doesn't have a big plot uh, draw like some of his other work. And I just mm-hmm. really admire how he was able to make this movie that has stuck with me for so long. That's really just about uh, human relationships without any real um, drama or, com- or, or scandal. <laughs> and I think that's what uh, made me think of it right away. It is. You're right. It is his quietest film. I, maybe Mr. Turner comes close. Like the sort of late yeah. period shift towards films that are more contemplative. Although this one's still very dialogue driven. It's mostly about, yeah. it's, it's a film about awkward pauses more than anything else. And, yeah. and then the sense that people are struggling so profoundly and can't articulate, they don't have the language to, to say what's wrong with them. But also that, specifically English quality of not, you know, acknowledging anything ever. Um, it's fascinating. I, I have married into an English family uh, from Ooh. the North. And so the rules are a little bit different, but it's been fascinating meeting friends of friends and, and relations and, and realizing whenever I am in England that, oh yeah, I come off as a loud American and I'm from Toronto. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, too, where I feel funny choosing this film because I have no tie to England in any way, shape or form. So for me, I can see some cultural um, distinctions there, but I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider to them. Mr. Turner is also a quiet film, but it has that hook of being about an artist and being a period piece. So there's a selling point to it, which I think that another year it's harder to... Um, it's harder to pitch another year, I would say. And yeah. I think that that just comes to mind partly because I'm, you know, making my own first feature and there's all those questions about like, how do you get a movie made? Like, how do you get people to watch your film? And I really love how another year just is what it is and people flock to it anyhow. <laughs> He's such a strange animal to me because I, I know I've said this on the podcast before, so I may cut it, but he was definitely the worst interview I've ever had as a journalist. <laughs> And you interviewed it, him. I interviewed him in 96 for Secrets and Lies. Wow. Um, he came to Toronto. Um, I'm not even sure it was at TIFF. It might have been slightly later. 
uh, that I did the interview. And he was uncooperative to the point of hostility. And it apparently it was just because it was television. I was doing, I was filling in for global TV and I was this 28 year old kid asking him questions about his movie. And, you know, I knew all about his films. I'd been writing about them since the eighties and it's not like I was a rookie, but he saw the camera, I think, and just shut down or just had no interest in being helpful anyway. And it was <laughs> like, he picked his nose to render the footage unusable. It was just, it was incredibly <gasps> disrespectful of the process. Mike. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and Ingrid Randoja, uh, who interviewed him for now, said she had a great conversation and they talked for way over their time and it just, it was her in a tape recorder. Um, you know, though, I'm not surprised because I did watch the director's commentary on this film in preparation for this. Oh God, did he mention <laughs> me? Conversation. Yeah, he mentioned you a lot, actually. <laughs> no, See, I, can't, I'm, I can't listen. He, I think that Mike Lee, like, he fascinates me because he's so unbearable. Like, the way he talks <laughs> is, like, unbelievably unlikable. And also, um, because his films are so deeply empathetic towards the characters, it's always really funny to me to hear him speak or to read his interviews because the disdain he has for literally everyone around yeah. him. Yeah, Leslie Vanville's there with him for this director's commentary. And every time she tries to speak, he'll cut her off. He'll be like, ah, 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 ah. he makes a sound to cut her off to correct what she's about to say. Oh my and God. she's very patient with him. They obviously have a good relationship, but it was just cracking me up because I was like, man, like even with this person who made your film just be hypnotic, uh, incredible experience that it is um he's still sort of keeping that position of superiority which which i find really funny <laughs> and you're right his films are almost to a fault incredibly empathetic to their to his yeah. characters and i'm sure that's part of the process he has where he you know the workshopping leads to the screenwriting leads to the they're not improvised but they are improvised and so he's He's yeah. lived the lives with those characters, with the actors, and then he sees them better than the actors do, and then the actors take them back on set, and it's this yeah. whole... It's fascinating, and I would I would love to see a documentary that actually follows, that shadows the entire process. It would be like a six-part television series or something, but Absolutely. I would watch that. And it's it's like he's a reverse David Lynch. You know, he gets it... <laughs> Lynch gets it all out, and so in person, he's just this charming image of mediocre middle America where he's, you know, yeah, oh boy, yeah. that's fantastic. And, you know, like he's just, he's not, it's not a bit, like that's who he is. But yeah. Mike Lee gets all the, he leaves the empathy on the on the screen and you have to deal oh with God. it. And it's the funniest thing because in the commentary, not to keep going back to it, but mm. I will because I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> he doesn't say a single nice thing about Leslie Banville's no. character, Mary. He calls her... Uh, self-absorbed he always comments on how much she's drinking he he says something which is true but which I also thought was really funny where she's just a woman who has absolutely no sense of humor and there's all the empathy that you have for her on the screen I was just waiting for him to say one thing to be like this is why she is the way she is or to even acknowledge why we care about her but he just has this extremely low opinion of her that he makes extremely clear through the commentary and it kind of blew me away because my perception of watching the film was not that. Like, you don't look at it and think of this filmmaker as being someone who um, has a bad opinion of any of the characters on the screen, right? Like, they're all human and well-rounded and they have their flaws, but you also 
can see that he sees them as in their vulnerable state, but like presents them in a way that shows a lot of compassion. Anyways, it was just so funny to listen to. That's that's highly horrible, horrible and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> there is an alternate reading of the film. I wish it was, I didn't think of it and I wish I had. Um, that's basically the idea is that, that Tom, Jim Broadbent's character is a vampire, an emotional vampire, that he is, he's inviting oh all of God. his friends out there to torment <laughs> them at how great his life is and how miserable their lives are. And along that can, because he's always, it's, it's, it is, I think, Jim Broadbent's best performance because he is unreadable. When you go back and look at it that way, it's like, oh yeah, that that could work. That There's nothing in the film that contradicts the idea that he has people wow. up to subtly torture them about how happy he is because all of his questions are leading questions and they could be read as incredibly empathetic. You know, oh, and how does that, how do you feel about that? The, the job that you didn't get, is that okay? Are you all right with it? And he could be expressing concern, but there's just enough of an edge in his voice or the way he holds himself. His eyes don't light up as quickly as his smile does that it's possible he's enjoying this in a way that he's not supposed to. And in that reading, <laughs> Mary is his victim. Like she is trapped wow. with this monster who no wow. one sees as a monster. And so she's irritable and angry and cranky and cutting everyone, just trying, basically asking for help in this reading. Yeah. And I don't know that I buy it, but it's over the years, it's kind of hard to shake. And now, of course, I mean, given my own leanings towards Mike Lee, that certainly seems like it's possible. <laughs> I think that's a really juicy take. And I'm definitely not one to dismiss a juicy take. Like, I was not aware of that. Thinking back on it, I could see it. And I'm curious to watch the film again with that in mind, because I can really get on board with a theory like that. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, to me, Tom's character is... Okay, well, here's a question for you. I've been thinking about this a lot and I go back and forth, but who do you think is the main character? I know it's an ensemble piece, but like, who do you think is the main character of this film? Ooh. Well, we're introduced to, to Ken first, right? Drinking on the train, but he's not. No, no. Central. The first person we meet is actually Imelda Staunton's character, oh, the right. um, woman who's only in two scenes. Yes. Um, Janet. In the, in the clinic. Saying. Janet, yes. Janet. I forgot about that. I have not yeah. revisited it recently because of all the things that are spiraling around, obviously. But um, oh, don't worry. <laughs> oh no, I want. I, I really do. I want to watch it again. It's just I'm not ready for that level of specific unhappiness. <laughs> if I if I oh, no. if I follow along just right now, I need a little buoyancy. Yes. Um, also, don't I just I have it. just watched all seven episodes of the Ben Wishaw medical series. This is going to hurt, which it, it does. So, you know, there's that. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to put that on my list. <laughs> uh, it's uh, English Misery. It's set in 2006 in the collapsing national health system. Uh, Wishaw plays Fabulous. a real person, Adam Kay, who wrote the memoir and then the series. Um, it's on AMC Plus here. I'm not sure where it's, where else it'll okay. turn up in Canada, but it'll it, it'll be showing up eventually on Craig yeah. or something. But it's it's really good and absolutely brutal emotionally well i also just finished the rehearsal oh i still haven't started that oh that's also brutal in a different way but yeah i'm all about it i really so, like what nathan fielder does i just haven't had the mind space it. to watch it yet no. um but yeah the i don't know if there 
I mean, I think the main character, and this sounds so uh, pretentious, but I think the main character is England. Because uh, this is what I was oh, going to say. Like, uh, I think this film is in much the same way that the Ben Wishaw series uses the 2006 crisis in healthcare to sort of point to where we are now. Another year is weirdly one of the first Brexit films in that it signifies it knows something's wrong. I mean, Naked did the same thing, right? This isn't a new tactic for Lee. And so I was sort of predisposed to see it, I think. But he's really good at capturing the zeitgeist of anxiety, the the way that everyone is braced about something, but they don't know what it is yet. And they can't put a, a name to it. This, this, you know, this middle-aged man who's just binge drinking on a train first thing in the morning for the weekend is going to vote Brexit. Like he's going to vote yes, he'll vote leave. And Lee doesn't even know that's coming. He just knows there's something in the air. And the last time I saw it, which would have been maybe three, just before the pandemic, three years ago, I was struck by just how much is coming, how much of this is about anxiety, economy, uncertainty. There's all this stuff about the allotment where, you know, like it, it's mm -hmm. it's a public gardening space, but they're feeling entitled to that space and they're claiming it. it I'd love to talk to him about that. And I know I also know he won't give me yeah. a straight answer because it's just not his way. But no. it really does feel like it's it's the first it's the canary in the coal mine. It's the first movie that sees David Cameron's election as the end of the world. Yeah. For, Ooh, for Britain. That's amazing. Well, and you know, um, that actually makes a lot of sense to me just thinking about some of the stuff that's come up for me. Like, I think that this film, it's a lot about characters who who see the future either as a place of joy and security or as a place of terrifying unknown. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the characters have a past that either haunts them or buoys them. And it's it's an either or scenario with every single character. And, um, you know, of course, they're more complex than that. But I do think that there's people like Tom and Jerry who have their allotment, but they also have a very beautiful garden at home. Um, and then there's people who don't quite have that um, and and maybe don't don't know to take advantage of those things that are offered. Because my understanding is that with allotments, it's something that you are able to have um, you don't need to like, I don't know. I'm sure you have to apply. I'm sure it's a very municipal bureaucratic thing, but it's all the council this sort of idea. Of, yeah, exactly. So I, I feel like there's this sort of difference between, I don't know. It's, it's, it's about the future and about how people's perceptions of what's to come either calms them in the moment or causes them great anxiety in the moment. Yeah. And you know, city. Uh, yeah. Given the state of the world, since and everything else that's going on it's a conversation that we're we're having here constantly between ourselves between cultures between communities and i'm realizing that i'm I, i'm an optimist uh and it's probably going to be the death of me because you know my <laughs> wife is much more pessimistic and more about you know we need to figure out what's going to happen where where will be five years from now, ten years from now? Not just economically and personally, but where the state of the city will be and where, what that means to us. And we've had some like serious, heavy conversations about this recently. And I'm just realizing I I don't know if it's because I when I was a kid I didn't. Maybe, you know, I grew up in the '80s with 
the Cold War at heating up, and and maybe I just never expected I'd make it to my fifties, let alone my sixties or seventies, just because I was a I was a bookish kid and I read a lot of really unnerving things about nuclear war, <laughs> and so I'm more of the you know I'm the grasshopper enjoying whatever I can in the moment, and she's like, well, okay, but eventually we have to talk about long term care and living wills, and it's like I did not oh, expect God. that I would need those things ever in my life. But it is like, it's a really clear split now as the world gets worse and worse. And the seeds of it are happening in Lee's film. Yeah. Yeah. Planted in the allotment I, of our hearts. Planted in the allotment of our hearts. And I mean, Lee is such a staunch socialist, which is really wonderful because he tells his stories all kind of come with that um, perspective. But again, to talk with the commentary, he is fully on Tom and Jerry's side. And oh, yeah. he... He is very defensive of them. Um, he uses the phrase, some people say a lot in the commentary based on, I guess, people saying that Tom and Jerry might be perceived as smug or as um, cruel in the sense of rubbing their good luck in everyone's faces. But he really uh, defends them. Um, and I'm, cur- I just, I'm bringing that up just because I think it's a little curious um, knowing that just the take on film being about Brexit or being or not obviously that was yeah just a little sparkle in England's eye at the time but um you know just that those those low-level anxieties that are building and yeah it's interesting the amount of yeah yeah (laughs) and they live outside the city they are safe right they're ensconced from they're protected from whatever miseries are coming they've they've seen it coming and they've gotten out or they've just been lucky well, and I think that they live in a small suburb near London, um, but they go visit uh, Jim Broadbent's character's brother where he grew up, which seems to be a trip away. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they have this sort of protection of just outside of like the city city, but still close to the city. So they have that proximity that is sort of cosmopolitan, I guess, but they can still go to their allotment, um, whereas they have effectively left a harder life behind. Or yeah. at least we know that Tom's character has. Yeah. And what does it mean for them to offer this place to their friends and see mm-hmm. them constantly, but always with the exception of Tom's brother, but always seeing them on their terms, always making sure people come yeah. to them. Right. It's yeah. It's like, they're not, I know England doesn't have the same relationship to the cottage that we have in, in Canada, mm-hmm. probably because our weather is so much more brutal like summers are hotter and harsher (laughs) so you want to escape to a cottage here it's you know you go out to the country you go to the seaside in the uk and that's the escape but the temperature doesn't really change it's not the same kind of flight so they're welcoming people and they're very they're very kind and they're very hospitable and accommodating but it's always on their terms yes and actually that was something i really noticed in terms of what mike lee shows us because mary is mary's the the person who gives the movie the tension and the point of it all and we never see her outside of them we even see ken like we see ken on the train by himself Mm -hmm. Uh, we see their son joe at work by himself we see jerry at work by herself we see tom at work by himself we even see their friend, the doctor, at work by herself. Yes. But Mary, we never see Mary's apartment, even though she talks about it. We never see Mary have a scene by herself where she's not in relation to Jerry or Tom, except for that one scene in the car where she's driving Joe and Ken. 
Like she just doesn't get, and she's fully excluded from having any sense of interiority physically on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is I, fascinating because she's constantly yeah. talking about how alone she is. Yeah, exactly. So I just found that really interesting because of course their house, Tom and Jerry's house is the, is the center for everything that happens and passes through. And even in the title of another year, it's sort of almost like from their perspective, this is just what another year looks like for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these peripheral characters come and go. Yet some of them are given their moment alone while Mary just absolutely isn't given that. Yeah. And we learn about her through her long monologues about her car, her little small red car which I, you know, I think is just phenomenal. So you're getting her perspective through that, but we're not actually witnessing it as an observer. We're, we're hearing it through her own filter. Yeah. And of course, as you point that out, I'm thinking, wait, no, I saw that. That's in the movie. And it, it isn't. It's just Manville. It's just her monologue. It's, it's like the, the story, I think it's David Strathairn tells it in The Secret of Rowan Inish about... The girl's parents, who she never knew. No, sorry, it's the actor who plays her grandfather. I can't remember who it is. But it's so beautifully written that I am convinced I have seen it, and it is just a man talking. <laughs> That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really, it's almost hypnotic when a good actor mm-hmm. is given a story that detailed and the material is so strong that mm-hmm. you can, you picture it as you're hearing it, you're there watching it, and then your mind overwrites it in a weird way. I, yeah, it's fantastic <laughs> when that happens. But yeah, another year is it, in my head, I've seen those scenes. I've, I've seen the car. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. No, it's not there at all. No. I mean, we do, like, she shows it off to them outside of their house, but we don't see the stories she tells, like right. how she got towed or how she got broken into or how her stuff got like all the toilet rolls she bought got stolen from it. And all the ups and downs of this car drama is just all told through, through monologue, (laughs) very uncomfortable monologues. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I mean about how it's totally readable as she's the sad sack they have up to feel better about themselves because their car is not being broken into because they don't live in the city, right? They're not, they, they can write off all that, as one person, one person's run of bad luck. And as well, Mm -hmm. she's the sort of person it seems who only has bad luck because she refuses to accept the possibility of something going well. So she's just created this, this terrible feedback loop of her own misery. Um, I mean, obviously bad things are happening to her, but it's about perspective, right? It's about how you choose to respond to them. And Mary has given up trying to find a bright side, it seems. Yeah, by the end, for sure, because I feel like she does this thing in the beginning where she kind of sees herself as a laugh, like she loves to come in and tell her woes, but very cheerfully, like, can you believe this happened to me? Yeah. But then later in the film, when she that scene, which is just burned into my heart, where um, she meets Joe's girlfriend, Katie, and then she starts telling the story about how her car got broken into. It's a story you could tell she was ready to tell and get a laugh from everyone. But when she starts talking, her own emotional state is so rattled that it just comes yeah. out as petulant and uh, whining and self-victimizing. Uh, and um, it's just the the context in which she tells these stories is so fascinating and her emotional state. And I think that's another thing is like there's characters who react with their emotions and there's characters who react with their, with their uh, rationale. And I think that that has to do with 
being insecure or being secure. Um, and, you know, with, with Mary and Ken, they're both very emotional people where these things happen to them and they react in ways that make them more vulnerable. Whereas Tom and Jerry sort of have this protective layer of confidence where they can have something happen and they have the space to, to acknowledge it and process it before they respond. And I just find that really interesting too, that extra layer of protection that they have because of all the things that give them so much privilege. Yeah. And the insulation gives them the, it's intellectual and it's, it's literal, right? They, they don't mm-hmm. have to have these, they don't have to sympathize if they don't want to, because this isn't happening to them. This is an abstract. Yeah. And, well, and there's also boundaries. Like Jerry's a professional counselor and for work, her job is literally to counsel people and offer advice and help them find the root of their problems. And she's drawn a really clear boundary where she's friends with Mary, but she's not going to be her counselor. And there's that heartbreaking moment at the end of the film where Mary says, I don't want a counselor. I just want to talk to you. And Jerry basically says, no, we got to find you someone to talk to. And there's several times in the film where Mary offers to Jerry, like, I want to be here for you. I want to listen, like, tell me everything. And she even says that to Joe as well. And you can tell that she's trying to even the playing field a bit. She obviously has enough self-awareness to realize that she is putting a lot of emotional responsibility on her friend. But the thing is that Mary's a terrible listener. So why would they ever share anything painful with her knowing that it's not going to be helpful to them in any way, shape or form? It's just very interesting to me. (laughs) Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletters, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. I just sent out a look at Shout Factory's 4K upgrade of Toby Hooper's The Fun House and Arrow Video's Running Out of Time double bill, and this weekend, somehow, I'll tackle Paramount's ultra-high-definition restoration of Star Trek The Motion Picture and the 4K treatment of its sequels. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Yes, even during a film festival. Come check it out. You know, if Mike Lee has an avatar an alter ego in the film maybe it's maybe it's mary because mm. she's sort of hard to deal with and brusque and self-absorbed but she sees herself as trying right oh my god at least at the end but i i and also oh. i wonder if he has the self-awareness to realize that because the, the his most his previous film before this was happy go lucky yeah, which is a similar dichotomy, right? It's about someone who is unflappable and irre- irreparably optimistic, <laughs> to a fault. Uh, in yeah. Sally Hawkins' performance, and she's contrasted with this febrile rage monster um, in Eddie Marsan, who is, and they're both absolutely lovely people. And I've talked to them about this over the years, oh. like here and there. And there's like, yeah, no, we got on great. It was fun. It was fine. I spat on her sometimes, but she understood it was in yeah. character. But like, because, you know, six months of that, six months of the most extreme emotions on either side to create yeah. that film, this was his response. Like, this is the film he follows it with, which I find really fascinating because it is mm-hmm. so completely level in its tone and almost yeah. whimsical in the music, the choices of the score are a bit, yeah. a bit looser than his usual stuff. 
it actually made me think of this. I think High Hopes has a similar score, but that's going back a good 20 years. Um, Maybe it's just the woodwinds, but it's, there's something similar about the two scores. And he's made this film where there is profound misery and all of these powerful emotions are roiling around, but it's all about repression. Whereas happy go lucky was just about spewing uh, positivity and negativity to see what happens when they cancel, if they cancel each other out or if one can corrupt the other. Um, (laughs) And it's just, it's so weird and measured, but there's no one in happy go lucky that felt like an avatar for Lee. It felt to me like he was studying these two specimens of people he he was completely unlike, and that was the challenge of the story. Mm-hmm. And here it's just oh like, that cranky person reminds me of someone. Yeah, well, you know, okay, here's a doubling up on your theory. I think that Mike Lee sees Tom as his avatar, mm-hmm. as a sort of all-knowing, uh, observant person. But in reality, Mary and Ken are kind of Mike Lee, but he's putting the worst of himself that he wouldn't want to speak of into them. And then in this director's commentary is just lampooning them in the process. It's almost like a way of him to try to address and knock down those parts of himself that maybe he's aware of, but doesn't like, whereas he really aligns himself with Tom and feeling like he's in Tom's situation in real life. (laughs) Tom is doing the yes and thing, right? For improv. Yeah. He's he's quietly getting everyone to keep talking. Yes. Um, and in the yeah. in the emotional vamp if the emotional vampire reading is a filmmaker consuming them for material, that kind of works too. I mean, maybe he's in every character, but I I like this, like his conscious avatar and his subconscious avatar could maybe exist together. <laughs> yeah. And Broadbent, yeah. I mean, they've all worked together over the years in small roles and large roles, Broadbent mm-hmm. would see it. Broadbent would get it, I think. And yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to to extend that tiny metaphor just a little bit further, um, the, the other <laughs> side of the Tom is a vampire or Tom is an emotional vampire <laughs> argument is that Jerry is feeding him by bringing people. As a counselor, she's best equipped to see who's broken and needs to be brought to him. And so she's sort of his Renfield presenting him with and again, there's nothing in Ruth Sheen's performance to, to contradict that. It's She's remarkable because she is an incredibly empathetic character. She is just taking it all in all the time. But what she's doing with it, we never see. Like, we don't see her coping strategies at all. And No. It's so fascinating. I really like this. I really like this. I'm telling take. you, once you start thinking about it, it really does not go away. <laughs> Because why do all these people keep coming around? Like, obviously, they're really good cooks. They talk about it all the time. There's also this, like, there's all these really obvious metaphors that if it was a worse filmmaker, I would be so mad at them. But, like, (laughs) there's their garden. Like, they're always harvesting this abundance and cooking fresh meals for everyone. And there's Mary's car, which is, you know, breaks down. And by the end, like, it has its own arc. Like, there's all these really obvious not very original ideas (laughs) that are handled well because it's Mike Lee and you're like, okay, I'm all over this. But there's something about this idea of Ruth as being, or Ruth's character of Jerry being this, like she harvests from the garden. She brings broadbent, like all these uh, strays to emotionally feed off of. 
just that uh, that dynamic's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I'm going to find out who came up with this because it's she. It is ingenious. Um, but there is, it's, I think it's just reacting to the anxiety behind everybody's eyes, to the stuff that's going on where th- nobody who goes to see them leaves happier. No, that is a good point. Yeah, they all come away worse. They do. And, you know, the big coup is when they go back to um, Tom's family home because his brother's wife died. Mm. And they, they really convince Ronnie to come back to town with them. Like they really ask him several times and he's not really into it, but finally he just does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we cut to their home and Ronnie's just by himself at their house. Like Tom and Jerry are out at the allotment. Like they've just left Ronnie alone in this house with like no plan. And there's that wonderful time where Mary comes and she and Ronnie have to sort of dance around each other a bit. But yeah, it's like they, they bring this guy here. That are care- I guess that's under the guise of caring for him, but you don't really see them care for him in that way. And it's just all a little fishy, isn't it? This compulsion to bring these people back. Yeah. And then not know what to do with them or not know how to relate to them any further. It's, it's you know, Jerry's barrier, the boundary that yeah, she sets. When they make conversation, it's all about stuff that's obviously not fun for for ronnie or mary to talk about like they're all talking about their travels like their honeymoon they took like a seven-month honeymoon traveling through like europe and asia and went down to greece and they're telling this long story which like mary and ronnie literally have no interest in it and they know that it's mean it's kind of mean <laughs> yeah it's like the family members who insist on showing you every photo they took on a vacation instead of just the highlights Yes. <laughs> it's, I, I couldn't tell if it was preening or if they just don't know how to relate to people beyond the like falling back on the thing that they know how to do, which is talk about themselves and roll and roll and roll. Or even a more generous reading would be that these people aren't going to make conversations, so they're just going to act normally and why hide their happiness? Because, you know, it's what they can talk about. And these people know that they don't have to be there if they don't want to be there. Yeah, except that you begged them to come. There's many different ways to look at it. I personally wouldn't go on a long talk about a travel like that if I knew my audience was not interested or would also maybe feel like shit if I was talking about it. Yeah, just put on a movie. There's movies. You can can distract people. Exactly. (laughs) I've been trying to figure out how to make this pivot to Until Branch has been because Another Year is such a dialogue-driven film and so... Yeah. packed with you know not event exactly but but activity stuff's always people are always going to and coming from and until branches bend is a really <laughs> spare focused i mean this is not a criticism i loved it but you know we're watching grace glowicki crack for an hour and a half <laughs> and if we're going to do that there is no better person to watch i i i am a huge fan, admirer of, her, of hers but You've made a movie about a culture acting to protect itself from a looming threat, which is sort of kind of the same in in terms yeah. of anxiety. So maybe that's how we get into it. But was that on your mind? I mean, this feels like in so many ways a response to the anti-vaxxers of COVID and all that's happening right oh. now. But I know how movies work. You must have written this before. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the first draft was in 2016. Right. And I mean, there's been many, many drafts. This is a first feature. It goes through a lot before 
been allowed to get made just in terms of financing. So, I mean, an interesting thing was that we were supposed to shoot in the summer of 2020, um, but then something happened. So we had to push by a year. And in that year, there was a lot of people saying, oh my God, your film is a little bit too topical. And I think I had this fear of, oh gosh, people are going to think that this is a reaction to the events of 2020. And of course it's not, but having that extra year was really helpful for me to be able to, you know, witness what was happening around me and and in the world and take that into mind when we were going into production. Um, You know, and there's other parts of the film too, like Roe v. Wade was overturned when we were well into post. So that whole situation in the film as well might be seen as a reaction, but it's not. I think it's just the low level anxieties we have about these extreme opinions that maybe we're just living within me for the last few years and which seem to just be coming to light, which I guess is kind of the theme of the movie is there's stuff that simmers below the surface. You can't really name it until it bursts out and then you can point the fingers at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought about Take Shelter as well, the um, the Jeff Nichols film yeah. where you're just watching someone boil alive in their own yeah. paranoia and because we have no external perspective as as is the case in your film there's really no release there's no way out except to go through it with them and that's where compassion comes in right because if the filmmaker just treats them as a lab rat it's going to be unpleasant at best unbearable at worst but there's so much compassion for your characters i mean not just for her but for everyone i think you are you are trying to see them as as people with motivations if not agendas right like everybody is coming yeah. from a real place it's just the oh, yeah. level of elasticity they have in their minds that's that's the problem they all have their own individual interests at top of mind i think because their individual interests are kind of high stakes for a lot of them like for her friend jay he's a farmer and it's a family like you know it's a generations of families who've, who've been running this orchard and they had a really rough go of it recently. So if this, you know, bug is a problem, then they're effectively doomed. So, yeah. you know, there's understanding about where people's positions are and what they want to believe and what they don't want to hear. Um, all over the place. I think even with Dennis, who could arguably be the antagonist of the film, like I think this person has a job to do and he's also a people pleaser and, um, I didn't want him to come across as just one note or one one thing. I really wanted to show that he's in an awkward position where he kind of has to like do something terrible in order to do what he thinks might be the most helpful thing for everyone else. So doesn't excuse what he does, but at the same time, I, I understand the position that everybody isn't in in this film. Yeah, it's funny. The other movie... And maybe this is just because it's always in the back of my mind somewhere, but the other movie that I thought of while watching your film was Jaws, where, you know, Larry Vaughn is not a bad, he is, he's a bad person, but he's not a bad person. He doesn't think he's a bad person and he's just trying to keep the town going, right? Like, yeah. (laughs) I mean, again, COVID, right? Short-term sacrifice, long-term safety. We blew right past that. Oh yeah. (laughs) So it's not just the one outlier this is a thing that's in people's minds and, and, a, and a, as it turns out, a, a human response to crisis, to conflict is to just pretend it's not that bad and do absolutely nothing. <laughs> 
Yes. Well, you know, there is that town hall scene in Jaws, which I did watch a few times trying to figure out how to do a town hall scene of my own. So I'm glad I that I recognized Jaws that. For you. <laughs> it's never far from my mind. Never far. Between that and Footloose, I mean, <laughs> another great town hall scene. Yeah. I mean, I think that to tie my film to another year, I think another year is something that for me, when I watch it, I feel so deeply for the, all the characters. And I also recognize that dynamic in a really personal way. Like, I feel like I know these people and I've been in those situations. And I think with my film, Until Branches Bend, which is very different, there was so, how do I put this? Okay, so our film got funding from Telefilm and it was also a Swiss co-production. So there was a lot of people um, involved and a lot of people who didn't really know me super well. So, you know, to put an investment into a first feature is a, is a risk. And obviously everyone wants to know that the director will be able to pull it off. And of so the script phase became a bit frustrating for me because a lot of the time I was being asked to change the script in order to accommodate um, notes that I think in my mind weren't really helpful or necessary, but were kind of, I had to sort of go find a compromise in order to secure the funding and move forward. And I'm pleased to say that a lot of that writing, which I consider bad writing was completely gone by production and by the edit. But a lot of my instincts, I really had to hold on to my instincts um, to move forward. And I'm just really looking forward to being in a place in my career, maybe for the next film or maybe in 20 films later, where I can be like Mike Lee and just make a movie like another year, which honestly the first film, like no one would ever let you make another year. Like that script is just absolutely on the page. Nothing oh, yeah. happens. Nothing at all. Nothing yeah. And when you watch it, it's brilliant, but you really have to prove yourself as a filmmaker to be even allowed to make a film like that. And I don't think that I'm a filmmaker like Mike Lee in the sense that I don't think we tackle the same subject matter necessarily, but I just love to see something like that where I'm like, God, these movies are getting made. These movies that would be deemed inconsequential by the gatekeepers, but they do get made by someone like Mike Lee. And I just find it like, I think for myself as a filmmaker, I want to get to that place where I don't have to answer so many questions anymore. I can just follow my instincts because I'm like, there is something here and it needs to be shown. Um, so very different movies, but kind of just coming from that world of how do you even get a film made and how does a film like another year get made? It's amazing. <laughs> force of will, I assume. It's basically just like, we, we just went to Cannes. This is my next project. You can take it or leave it. And they, they make it for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And I mean, Mike Lee is in this really useful position where he kind of operates as a theater director. He has a troupe of actors that he works with all the time, people who really are behind him. And he has this mysterious process that he doesn't tell too many people exactly about, but you hear about it in whispers and in interviews with the actors and stuff. I know. No one will talk about it. Even even Hawkins and Marsan were just really vague about it. It was like interviewing <laughs> Jessica Chastain after a Terrence Malick movie where she'll talk yeah. about what she does. And she's like, oh, we spent, I don't know how well you remember the tree of life, but there's a scene where uh, she gets the phone call about her son and mm. she's in the kitchen and it's over her shoulder and she goes and picks it up. And she said, we shot two weeks of that, just that <gasps> shot. 
and and Malik is behind her with the, holding the camera himself. And she said, and she just, and I said, what is that like? And she's just like, it's Terry. And she would not go any further. Like she talked about her own process and all the different things she did, but she stopped short every time. They're just so instinctively protective that you have to piece it together from circumstantial evidence. Well, did you ever hear about, um, do you know that podcast? I think it's called Team Deacons. It's like a cinematography podcast. Oh, Deacons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Deacons. They got Dick Pope. Mike Lee cinematographer to come on oh, I not heard that. to talk and he he does and then Mike Lee apparently was so upset by what Dick Pope said that he demanded a redo of the podcast so the, a few months later they released another episode where it's Dick Pope and Mike Lee where Mike Lee <sighs> basically just eviscerates Dick Pope's on his experience shooting whatever film they were talking about and Dick Pope just sort of takes it. Like he just like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Is this like <laughs> the prestige? Like, do they have this long-term character bit where he's just performing this and everybody's okay with it? I don't know. I just think it's so interesting. And like Dick Pope is an incredible cinematographer. Like this film, another year, it's it's so understated, but then there are these shots and these compositions where you're like, oh, like you really need someone with an eye yeah. to know how to get that. And and to not make it about the style of the cinematography. Like he's just fantastic, but um, I don't know. Mike Lee, man, he's so funny. He's just so funny. I wonder if he knows that he's so funny. I I hope so. I just, <laughs> I hope the people interviewing him now have a better time than I did is all I can say. Cause yeah. that was, that was rough, especially for somebody who is still, I mean, I wasn't young, young, but I was, I was under 30 and I was really, this is an yeah. idol of mine. It was the first time I met him and he was such a dick. It was so, oh it wasn't until like, I actually left the place with the tape and, and thinking, what did I do? And I asked my producer, take a look at this. Did I do something? Did I piss him off? And she said, no, he's mad from the start. It's nothing you did at all. You can tell, which oh was fine. God. And they got 30 seconds out of it and they used it as VO over footage, but just like he had his finger jammed up his nose and just everything he could do to ruin the footage. It was so insulting. That is. I mean, I'm so sorry, but also, aren't you glad you have that song now? <laughs> My thanks to Sophie Jarvis, whose terrific first feature, Until Branches Bend, has its world premiere at TIFF this Saturday, September 10th, at 8 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox 2. That's tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it drops. It repeats Monday, September 12th, at 8.30 p.m. at the Scotiabank 10. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. Sophie's not on Twitter, but you can follow her movie's progress at Photon Films Can, all one word, P-H-O-T-O-N-F-I-L-M-S-C-A-N, and you can find another year on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment and streaming on Tubi, Sundance Now, and AMC Plus in Canada. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out the newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you've been enjoying it or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you at the festival.